Thank you so much again for gathering with us. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we're going to spend some time now studying the scriptures together. What we like to do is center our gatherings around the opening of God's word because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. What we mean by this is we come with a posture of expectation. We come as those who are committed to learn from Jesus, and we come as those who are curious, who aren't so sure about Jesus, we come to learn, to see more of him. So we've been doing a series this summer called Stories of the King, and I want to encourage you to continue to follow along. A couple of the things that we've been asking you to try at home is try reading through the Jesus Storybook Bible as we follow these stories at home. Also try retelling the stories yourself. This week is a great story, um, so I really want to push the challenge out to retell the story that we're studying this week to yourself, to some friends, maybe have your kids do it, maybe have your roommates do it, film each other, and put it on Facebook. Um, And so we just want to encourage you to to practice the art of retelling the story. This is a short story this week. It's going to be Luke 19. It's going to be verses 1 through 10. This week we're calling it Saving the Unsavable. Saving the Unsavable. So as we look At Luke 19, we're going to see an example of Jesus saving someone who he had just said in the previous chapter was unsavable. He had just had this run-in with a rich man in the previous chapter, and this rich man walked away sad and did not want to give up his riches and follow Jesus. And Jesus uses this really helpful illustration. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You hear that illustration? Easier for a camel. Camels are big. Anybody here ever seen a camel before? Camels are enormous. We don't have a lot of them cruising around central Texas, but you've probably seen one in the zoo at least or seen pictures. Camels are gigantic. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The eye of a needle is very small. It's basically impossible. Jesus' disciples kind of fought him when he said this, and they were like, well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved then? If rich people can't be saved, who can be saved? What I want you to be thinking about right now is who in your mind you have put in the category of unsavable. Jesus says, those who have their needs taken care of, um, those who have money, those who physically are okay. Um, Really, here's another way to say what Jesus is saying is modern Americans are unsavable. Jesus is saying those who feel like their needs are taken care of are going to not necessarily recognize that they need God. And so we're going to have to really wrestle with this. We're the richest people in the world, even the poorest in the room. We're still richer than most people in the world. So we fit into this category. So we should feel the same frustration that the disciples felt in Luke 18 when they were like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Then who can be saved? And there's more to it. There's a debate. And Peter's like, well, what about us? We gave up stuff for you. you know. And there's a wrestling. And, and Jesus does assure them it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. But what we see in this story is Jesus showing us by way of illustration how rich people can be saved. So he says it's impossible. And then he says in Luke 18, but what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so we got to we got to wrestle and sit a little bit in the impossibility of our salvation. Jesus said it's impossible for us to be saved. And then he says, but what's impossible with man is possible with God. And that's what this story is. This story is unfolding that. He's going to show 
the impossible thing that he can do, but we can't. So Luke 19, starting in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief collector, tax collector, and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I'll read that last verse one more time. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Another way of saying that is he didn't come to save the savable. He came to save people like you and me who cannot be saved. But Jesus can do it. Jesus can save us, but we can't. Let me pray for us and we'll look at the text in more detail. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you show us that you are the God of the impossible. You are the God who saves the unsavable. And we see this in Jesus. We see it in his life. We see it in the strange things that he said. We see it in the interactions he had with sinners, with outsiders, with people that society considers unsavable. God, I pray that you would hit our hearts hard with the reality that we are outsiders, that we are unsavable. And that our salvation, our wholeness, our healing, our righteousness, it's impossible apart from you. So God, will you show us that this morning? Will you meet us here in your grace and your mercy? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we also are unsavable. I think it's a helpful thought exercise to say, you know, what are the category of people that I've kind of written off, right? What are the kind of people that I think are outsiders that I've maybe even stopped praying for or considered they'll never see Jesus, they'll never know Jesus. That's the kind of person that Jesus saves here. That's who Zacchaeus was. But on top of that, we need to feel the weight, like I said, of the reality that we are all that person. So this person, society agreed, he's an outsider. He's like a mobster. He was stealing from people. He was siding with the Roman. He was like a traitor to his own country. Any of us seen anyone like that? If you've been on social media, Everybody thinks everybody else is a traitor right now, right? Like everybody's mad at each other, right? That's who Zacchaeus was. He was seen as a traitor to his country. He was seen as a sinner. He was seen as an outsider. He was seen as someone who had rejected God and his rules. But remember, Jesus says, we're all unsavable. It's impossible for any of us to be saved. And so we should find great mercy in this text, great relief even for ourselves. Um, So we'll see three things as we move through the text, kind of following the story order. First of all, Jesus sees you, and that's relieving to realize. Jesus sees you. Jesus sees me. Secondly, Jesus makes sinners righteous. It sounds kind of uh, rudimentary, but it's a really important thing to understand. Jesus makes sinners righteous. That's what he's in the business of doing. And then finally, Jesus gives significance to the small. Jesus gives significance to the small. 
um, not just small, physical, short people like Zacchaeus, but to those who seem insignificant in society. So the first thing is we want to see is that Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. And this especially, I'm trying to aim at those of us who struggle to see Jesus as loving, as gracious, as saving. For those of you that maybe think it's illogical to believe in Jesus, for those of us that wonder maybe it's not illogical, maybe we understand abstractly Jesus forgives people, Jesus loves people, but does he really like me? Maybe I've got to clean myself up more before he'll really pay attention to me or want to be with me. What we want to see in this first point is Jesus sees you. We see this really illustrated beautifully in the way the story unfolds. So looking back at verse 1, we see that he entered Jericho. Jesus was entering Jericho, was passing through the city of Jericho. And it says in verse 2, and behold, there is a man named Zacchaeus. Now this word behold means look, right? It's edu in Greek. And it's like, pay attention, look at this. That's, that's what it is. It's a commonly used phrase uh, in narrative storytelling. Uh, it'd be like if you were telling a story, every important turn in the story, you'd say, pay attention to this. But it's literally, look, and look, behold, look at this. Verse 2, behold, look, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Little background explanation, the tax collectors were the Jews who cooperated with Rome. And so basically they were seen as traitors to their country because the the true Jews didn't want to be ruled by Rome. But the Jews that wanted to make a lot of money would cooperate with Rome, and he specifically cooperated with the mechanism of taking money from the oppressed Jews. And so he got some of the money, and Rome got some of the money. And so it was seen as like a mobster or an extortionist. And so stealing money is the way the Jesus Storybook Bible described it. And that's how everyone in first century Judea saw it. He was someone who stole money from the Jews and helped out the Romans, betrayed his people so that he, he could become rich. That's who he was. That's what a tax collector was. He was the chief tax collector, so he was especially rich, Right? Like he was uh, in charge of all the other bad guys that were doing this bad thing that everybody thought were sinners. Verse three, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was curious. We say this again and again at our church. We gather for the curious and the committed. And we want to continue to encourage you to be curious. It's not just like a switch that's flipped. Uh, You've got to go through a process of saying, who is this Jesus? Is Jesus really who everybody says he was? Why is Jesus the singularly most influential person in history? Do you ever have a basic intellectual curiosity to ask that question? Zacchaeus is asking those kinds of questions. We're not sure where he was in his faith journey at this moment, but at least he was pursuing, right? He was like, who is this Jesus? I want to see this Jesus guy. Everybody's following this Jesus guy. Who is he? I want to encourage you to take those steps as well. Investigate, look, see goes on in verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because why? He was small in stature. He was short. He was a little guy. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead. He, he goes ahead of the crowd, gets around the crowd, and then he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. I grabbed a picture off the internet of, of one of these Middle Eastern, it's sometimes called a sycamore fig. So it's a sycamore fig tree. It's a unique tree that has big branches that are low right? So that's why it's helpful for climbing, right? If you're a short dude, you can reach the low branches 
and then climb up. It's got these kind of low, gradually uh, moving up branches. So that's the kind of tree we're talking about. It's it's not like really rocket science. It's just an ability for him to get up higher, to get a a higher vantage point so he can see what's coming because he was a short guy that wouldn't have been able to see otherwise. But here's the interesting thing about that. It might seem like no big deal to us, but have you ever been out in public with a little boy that jumps and climbs on everything and you've had to tell him to stop? Has that ever happened to you? Um, I have a son who's now a grown man, 22. He still does this sometimes, but man, when he was a kid, he jumped and climbed on everything. And for the most part, we let him do it, you know, unless it was a violation or trespassing issue or, you know, unless there was a rule being broken. But we wanted to encourage his curiosity. Um, But there are times when you're like, oh, wait, no, that's not appropriate. Oh, wait, you're not supposed to climb on that. Oh, wait, no, you're not supposed to be there. And so if you've had that experience, you know it's not normal for people to climb on things all the time, right? Well, in this culture, it would have been even less normal, right? He was an important, wealthy man. Some of you, if you've heard the story of the prodigal son and how the father runs to him. You've, you've heard it said, well, you know, self-respecting Jewish man wouldn't have run. It reminds me of another parallel when I did ministry in Mexico with one of our friends that was a church planter there. He was like, oh, in our town, I don't know if this is true in all of Mexico. He's like, oh, men don't wear shorts, right? It's just not done. Um, I'm not judging those of you men who are wearing shorts, but I wear shorts. It's okay, right? But there I didn't because he said culturally that was like weird and disrespectful. No self-respecting man would do that there. And same thing here with a rich, wealthy man climbing a tree. That's crazy. That's what little boys do. That's not what rich men do. Jerem Bars, one of my favorite professors from seminary, says this. He says, clearly Zacchaeus is not interested in preserving his dignity. There's a turning point, it seems, in Zacchaeus's life here. Something's broken in him. He's giving up his dignity to see Jesus. Clearly, Zacchaeus is not interested in preserving his dignity. The wealthy and the powerful do not usually behave like small boys and climb trees in front of a crowd of people. Here's the thing, I think, that makes this applicational for you and me. You and I are often afraid to try to get close to God. I think years of being marketed at and being sold things that didn't come true has made us kind of build up this skepticism of like not wanting to get disappointed or maybe the kind of skepticism that says, I don't want to be one of those naive people that falls for everything. And that might be a barrier keeping you from investigating God, from looking into who Jesus is. And I want to encourage you to look at the example of Zacchaeus, a man who had everything and said, you know what? I'm willing to be undignified so I can get a better view of Jesus. I want to invite you into getting to know Jesus better. And this doesn't just apply to those of you that are unsure about Jesus. This applies for those of us that know Jesus already, right? We know Jesus already, and we want to kind of get to a place of stasis where everything's like stable and normal, and we're like, okay, I know Jesus. He's forgiven me of my sins, and now I can go back to being a respectful, you know, regular dignified person. Jesus is going to keep asking us to be undignified, in our pursuit of him. He's going to keep asking us to give up how we look in front of people so that we can scurry after him like a little boy trying to get a better view. And I want to encourage you and myself to, to keep going on that journey, right? Like Zacchaeus saying, okay, I, I got to scurry up the tree just so I can see Jesus. And is it going to look stupid? Is everybody going to think I'm a weirdo? Yeah, 
And that's okay, because I want to see Jesus. Do you desperately want to see Jesus in that same way? Are you willing to give up your dignity? Are you willing to look foolish and pursue Jesus? Don't let the skepticism of our marketing culture prevent you from, from going deeper. So here's a way to say it by way of application. Be curious. Look. Approach. Come near to Jesus. Keep pursuing him. Keep chasing after him. And here's the beautiful thing, right? What was my main point? My main point was Jesus sees you, right? All the application points have been, hey, you, go see Jesus, right? But here's the cool thing. Jesus sees you. There's something mystical that takes place here. As we pursue Jesus, we find out he was pursuing us all along. That's, what, that's what's so amazing about it. So pursue him. Throw away your dignity. Climb the tree. Get a better view. Do whatever it takes to get closer to Jesus. And the New Testament says this, James 4.8, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. If you try to get a better view of God, you'll find out that he's looking at you. He's pursuing you. Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews 11.6, without faith, just simple trust, Faith is an openness of like, it's you, God, not me. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. Seek him. Pursue him. And as you pursue him, you'll see that he was actually pursuing you. And that's what happens in the story. Look at verse 5, Luke 19, 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. I got to make a little comment. If, if any of you have grown up in the church, I grew up in and out of church, didn't go to church a lot as a kid, but one song really stuck out to me in my strange and limited experiences of Sunday school and children's church as a child. The few times I went, this might be the song that scared me away, because then I didn't go to church a lot in elementary school. But there's a song about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. A lot of you are familiar with it. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. It rhymes and everything. And, and so in that song, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. Have you all ever heard that song? My wife and I were just joking about this. It was, like, it was so confusing. It was like Jesus was so mad at him, but then he was going to his house, and it was like, what, is Jesus mad or is he happy? I don't know what's going on. And there was something about the hand motions or something. It just came across really odd to children. Jesus is like, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. <laughs> well, I think it's actually more of the I'm going to your house today part. That's really more of what it was like. Now, it was decisive. It was clear. This is the Lord of the universe. He's... He's giving directions. He's giving a command. It's definitely a command. Um, but the song, if the song freaked you out as a child, push that out of your mind. Um, maybe you like the song. Maybe I just ruined the song for you. I'm sorry. But here we see that Jesus confronts Zacchaeus. And it's not a scary confrontation. It's a confrontation of love. Zacchaeus, I want to be with you. I want to come spend time with you. Zacchaeus gets more than he bargained for. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, and Jesus wants to come into his house. And so this is the warning. 
I've been trying to sell you on, it's good to pursue Jesus. Because as you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. As you look at Jesus, you'll find that Jesus is looking at you. But be warned, you'll get more than you bargained for. Jesus isn't going to just look back at you in love. He's going to move into your house. And he's going to take over. He sees you. He knows you. He's pursuing you. Jesus sees you. Be curious. Look. Approach. Draw near. Pursue him. Look into, why, why is everyone amazed at this Jesus? Who is he? What was he about? Learn more. Read the New Testament. Look into the stories of Jesus. Read the stories of the King. Okay, the second point is that Jesus makes sinners righteous. Jesus makes sinners righteous. We'll see this in verses 5 through 8, the next scene, the next section, the next act, however you would describe this. Jesus makes sinners righteous. And this kind of plays out a tension that we have to understand. We see again and again in the Bible, and that is that uh, God loves sinners, and God wants people to be righteous, right? And if you are part of a religious group that emphasizes one at expense of the other, it becomes very unhealthy very quickly. If your group only talks about how much God wants people to be righteous, and because of that, he doesn't like sinners, you're going to have problems. It's going to become very judgmental, very backbiting. But if you also say, he loves sinners, but you never talk about how he actually wants you to obey him and be righteous, then you're going to have a very unhealthy, very dysfunctional society there as well. So here we see that Jesus makes sinners righteous. This is the process that he's inviting us into. So back to verse 5 again. When Jesus, lost my place. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, and he came down, and he received him joyfully. This is the first step in the process of Jesus making sinners righteous, is you receive Jesus joyfully. That's the first step. Not a contrarian spirit of like, I got to do this. And if I receive Jesus, then maybe he'll like me. No, you receive him joyfully because you see that he loves you and he's pursuing you, that he sees you. So first step is he receives him joyfully. Verse seven, when they saw it, they all grumbled. Everyone else, the religious people, the regular folk, the religious people of the day didn't believe that you could be religious and still love sinners, that you could be righteous and still Honor all peoples made in the image of God. But Jesus would do that. He would show dignity to people. He would pursue sinners. And so they were grumbling. He said, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They were disgusted by this. Verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So, Three parts that are really important. Zacchaeus received him joyfully. Religious people thought this was the wrong move, that Jesus was getting even close to a sinner. And then finally, we see the sinner has changed. We see the sinner has become righteous, has become generous, is making restitution and being generous both. We see transformation in his life. I want to zero in on how they didn't like to hang out with sinners A lot of the laws, a lot of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, the clean and unclean laws, were built to tell the story of how damaging and destructive sin is. 
And this is a good thing for you to teach your, your children, right? If you lie, if you steal, if you disobey mommy and daddy, it is destructive. It will hurt you. And a healthy church will continue to teach those things, that violating God's law is destructive, that pursuing sin, it's a parasite that will eat you alive. And what happens as you're, you're told that as a child, and then sometimes you start to grow up, and you start to break rules, and you start to do sin, and you don't see an immediate lightning bolt from God, and you think, oh, I've been lied to. Sin must not really be destructive. But I, I want you to know sin is destructive. And just because it doesn't destroy you all at once doesn't mean it's not slowly destroying you. And those of you that have continued down that road and hit rock bottom can testify to what I'm saying. At first you think, oh, this isn't so bad. This, this sin is actually fun. This sin is actually quite pleasurable. But as you continue down that road, sin grabs hold of you. It, it begins to take you over and you become a slave. It's something that you can't control anymore. It's controlling you and it destroys you more and more. And so that part of the story of the clean and unclean laws was true. Sin is an infection. And today, dealing with the virus, this is a good illustration. Um, Germ theory, the ceremonial law, it all kind of goes together, right? They had really strict laws about being clean and then they had other laws that were more ceremonial. They didn't really seem to have that much to do with, with germs and cleanliness and So in the Old Testament law, it gets confusing over how many of them were actually practical, right? Like practical laws that kept them clean and healthy, and some of them were just ceremonial. But all of them point to the same truth, that sin is destructive. So right now, in this room, you guys are wearing masks. We're worried about a virus. We're worrying about infecting our friends. We're worried about other people infecting us. It's a strange time, right? But almost throughout all of history, people have worried about getting sick by contact with other people. That's how the first century people understood sin. If I get around a sinner, it'll, it'll make me unclean, right? Uh, several years ago, I actually used this illustration before. In 2009, you know, we had the swine flu outbreak. I grabbed a picture of a couple getting married with masks on during the swine flu outbreak. And at the time, this was the craziest story I'd ever seen, right? Like this seemed impossible, Um, but here we are, we're back again, (laughs) we're doing it all over again, right? They had tested positive for the swine flu, they didn't want to cancel their wedding, they're like, all right, we'll tell everybody, we'll warn them all, we'll wear masks, we'll wear gloves, and we'll just roll on, right? And that's what they did years ago with the 2009 swine flu epidemic. Well, this is how first century Jews understood sin, that it's like a germ that could get on you. That if you get close to a sinner, then you will become tainted and you will become a sinner too. Now again, when you're teaching your children, there is some truth to that, right? Like if you hang out with the bad person too much, chances are you'll start doing bad things too. There's some basic truth to this. But there's a reversal that we see with Jesus that is amazing in the New Testament. So I want to encourage you to go back and reread the New Testament. You will see this movement where all the first century Jews were afraid of getting infected with sin. They were afraid of touching physically sick people, but also of being near morally sinful people because it would taint them. But Jesus would bring healing to them. It was like a reverse infection, right? Like wherever Jesus went, he infected people with health. Wherever Jesus went, he infected people with righteousness. It's a, it's a beautiful picture to contrast 
the fearfulness of, of the regular folk who didn't want to get infected with either sickness or immorality. And contrast that with Jesus who loved people and His goodness bled out on those that He loved. And so we see this cultural shift throughout the New Testament then. Followers of Jesus are, are encouraged to kind of move in that same direction, that we would move towards people who are broken. We would move towards people who are struggling so we could come alongside them and help them. There's still practical application. Be careful. Don't be arrogant. Don't think that you can't fall into sin, right? I'm not Jesus. You're not Jesus. And so we have to have a common sense, practical carefulness when we're helping others. Galatians talks about this at the end of the book. You who are spiritual help restore those who are struggling, but, but be careful that you don't fall into sin as well, right? So there's some common sense carefulness that we want to engage in, but we can be like Jesus. We can love those who are struggling and help them to do what is right. And we see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus begins a relationship with Zacchaeus, and instead of Zacchaeus making Jesus unrighteous, instead of the sinners that Jesus hangs out with making Jesus into a sinner, Jesus makes sinners righteous. Do you see that? That is the work that Jesus does. And so again, let me reread Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Two parts there of righteousness as it relates to richness, okay? If you're rich, which as I said before, if you're an American, you are. So sorry, poor people in the room, you're rich. You're still the richest people in the world. Just because you have friends that are richer than you doesn't mean you're not rich, right? We are, at this time in history, the richest people in the world. Even with economic collapse, even with the pandemic, right? We're still richer than most people in the world. Here's how we should see our riches. If I've taken advantage of anybody, I will repay fourfold. And beyond that, I'm going to be generous. What is the fourfold thing? Go back and look. Uh, well, you don't have to look right now, but you could write this down. Exodus 22. It comes up in other places in the New Testament as well, but there was this law that if you were stealing from people, if you just stole, you had to pay back twice, right? Like, oh, I saw that thing I wanted, I took it. I have to pay back twice you know, what I took. Um, so that was the kind of standard law for stealing. But for what seemed to be professional thieves, right? For people that were making a habit of it, it was fourfold. And so that's, that's what he's applying to himself. He is fulfilling the law, but he's also saying, I'm going to give away half of what I've got. That's just uh, open generosity, right? There's not a rule for generosity, but there's a model of people who believe that God has been generous to them will be generous. If you believe that you were well taken care of, you will share what you have. That's just who Christians are, right? And it's not a rule. We have to be real careful about this. Like, well, how generous are you? Are you generous enough to really be spiritually mature? That's not how it works. It's a heart transformation of, like Zacchaeus, saying, wow, I have a lot. I want to share with those who don't have a lot. That's what it looks like. You, you pray. You ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. But I want to zero in on him paying back the four times, right? He recognizes what he's done wrong and says, when I've done wrong, I'm going to pay back four times. He's fulfilling the Old Testament law. Zacchaeus is living out what was prophesied in uh, Jeremiah 31, and then that's repeated in Hebrews Eight in the New Testament, it says this prophecy that in the new covenant that God makes with his people, he's going to write the law in their hearts. From their heart, from their transformed heart, they will want to do what's right. 
And that's what we see being lived out in the life of Zacchaeus. Hebrews 8 says, God will write the law in our hearts. We should want to obey the moral law. We should be a people who say, God forgives and loves sinners, and we want to do what's right because he's transforming us. So application-wise, start doing what's right. That's a pretty simple application. Is there a place where God is convicting you and saying, you know, you've been sinning in this area. You need to turn, let go of that, and do what's right. But ask God to help you. Recognize that in this process, it starts with Jesus. It starts with Jesus initiating this relationship. Say, Jesus, I don't know if I can do this without you. Matter of fact, a better prayer would be to say, Jesus, I cannot do this without you. Jesus, will you show me where I'm transgressing against your law? Will you show me what I need to do differently? We have a modern society, a modern culture that has a a great disrespect for God's moral laws. Say, Jesus, will you show me where I'm living more like the culture instead of following what you say is right and wrong? Some great places to look for summaries of what is right and wrong to understand the law that God is writing on our heart. A simple one is the Ten Commandments, right, in Exodus 20. A good summary of that is Jesus saying, here's the summary, love God and love your neighbor. Paul takes that loving your neighbor and clarifies that in Galatians 5 and says, well, we can call this the fruit of the Holy Spirit working on your life, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, gentleness. So Galatians 5.22 is another good place to look. Are you obeying the Ten Commandments? Do you love God? Do you love your neighbor? Does it flow out of you in the fruits of the Spirit of kindness and joy and peace? If not, you confess that to him. None of us are perfect, right? And just to clarify, Jesus turns sinners righteous, right? Jesus makes sinners righteous, but he never does it all at once, right? Well, let me take that back. Here's how he does it all at once. If you die, that's how it works all at once, right? That's the all at once-ness when we see him face to face. But in this lifetime, it's a process. It's a slow process of waking up again and recognizing, oh man, I mistreated someone. I need to apologize and make amends and walk in newness of life. But recognize that Jesus is the power. He's the strength. He's the one that, that is changing your heart. So our application point is, do what's right. Obey the law. If you've, if you've been stealing, pay back fourfold, right? Learn to be generous. Learn to be kind. But do that in the strength that Jesus gives. Do that recognizing Jesus is better than anything. Do that because you've received Jesus joyfully. Do it with his power. Okay, last point. Jesus gives significance to the small. Jesus gives significance to the small. So we already saw at the beginning this dude was was physically short. Um, Also culturally a pariah, an outsider, someone that people saw as a sinner outside of society, didn't have a lot of friends. Uh, The new series, The Chosen, this is portrayed pretty well in the life of Matthew, who was also a tax collector. They kind of show how he was an outsider and other people didn't like him and stuff. Uh, You can think of other people in our society who might just be lonely, right? Like everybody looks down on them and no one's their friend, so they're insignificant socially. So he was physically insignificant and small. He was socially insignificant and small. And so We see that Jesus gives significance to the small. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. 
Now again, we just got to reiterate, what does salvation mean? Salvation means being made whole, being made right, being healed. And so he's saying, this is happening now in the life of Zacchaeus. This guy that you guys thought was an outsider, you thought he was small, you thought he was insignificant, you thought he didn't matter, you thought he was bad, he matters. I care about him. He is one of the sons of Abraham. So sons of Abraham is this reference to the promises that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis, where he kind of projected, prophesied this fulfillment that was going to come for the people of God, where there would be people who would believe and be saved and who would impact the world. And when this promise was made to Abraham about his children and how great his descendants would be, we're told that he told Abraham to look to the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky and say, that's how many children, that's how many descendants you'll have. That's how many children of faith Abraham will have. And Galatians and uh, Romans makes it real clear that, that he's talking about the faith relationship. He's talking about the people of God being restored to God through their faith, trust relationship with him. So that's the mechanics of how it works. As we trust in God, we become these significant sons of Abraham, these new people that God is saving the world with, which is a fulfillment of another farther back prophecy that God had made in Genesis 3, where he says that ultimately there will be a son of Eve that will defeat evil, right? So later on when he's talking about these promises with Abraham, it's a clarification of that. You're going to have a whole tribe of people that will defeat evil. Well, we know ultimately that fulfillment comes the tip of the spear is through Jesus, right? But we are the people who work with Jesus in the pushing back of evil in the world. We are also the sons of Abraham. I grabbed a picture of a starry sky. Uh, last night, my wife and I went outside and we were looking at the stars. There were tons of stars, not this many in the picture. Um, how many of you have ever been way out in the country where you can just see twice as many stars? It's amazing, isn't it? Um, so when God makes this promise to Abraham, it was an uncountable number, right? Because Abraham didn't live in a city like we do. He lived out in the country. So he could look up at the desert sky and see uncountable stars, just like looking at the grains of sand and see uncountable grains of sand. Here's what I want you to see. An individual star is not that significant in this illustration. Stars are gorgeous. We love the 10 stars that we can see in the city, right? They're beautiful. But by themselves, they're not that significant, especially in a desert sky, you know, with thousands of stars. Grains of sand, it's even more clear. A grain of sand by itself is not that significant, but it's pretty cool to walk on a whole beach of sand, right? Here's the thing. God makes us significant as he pulls us into this broader work that he's doing in the world. And our significance still starts with our small individual lives. One of my favorite quotes is from a book I read years ago by one of my seminary professors. His name is Zach Eswine. Um, here's a couple of quotes. It's a book called Imperfect Pastor. So you can't read it. It's just for pastors. Sorry. Um, just kidding. Not really. It's a great book. So it's called Imperfect Pastor. Um, but he was kind of chastising pastors and our desire to have big, powerful ministries, Right? I don't know if you know this, is a temptation for pastors. We all want to, you know, have big ministries that get larger and take over the world, right? That's our goal. And so here's a couple of quotes that he gave that were really, really helpful. You will be tempted to orient your desires towards doing large things 
in famous ways as fast and efficiently as you can. If you're a leader, you're like, yeah, that sounds great, right? <laughs> Large things, famous ways, as fast and efficiently as I can. He said, this will be a temptation for you, leader, pastor, anyone with any kind of influence. But he says, almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. Think about how impactful a moment of kindness can be with someone when they're down. You can disregard that, but that could be a life-changing moment for that person. Think of how impactful it is for a a baby to grow up being cared for. But when you're changing that one diaper, it does not seem significant. Matter of fact, it seems gross. But these small things add up, and over time, as you give the gift of unhurried time of listening, of kindness, of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, as you give these little gifts to people, as you obey God in those little moments where He says, do this, don't do that, Those things add up, and they build this this starry night of of beauty as we love people. They build a whole beach full of little grains of obedience. That's what God is calling us to. That's what God is saying Zacchaeus has become. Now, I also want to say on the other side, some of you, now I I was kind of preaching to those of you like me that maybe have a leadership position and maybe you're tempted towards just doing big things. Some of you, are terrified that God will ask you to do something big and public, right? I want you to understand that the same thing applies backwards as well, right? God asks you to be obedient to whatever he calls you to do. You may be much more comfortable with doing small things behind the scenes, and he might be saying, I want you to do something in front of people. I want you to do something that's maybe a little scarier and outside of your comfort zone and outside of the box for you. Whatever it is, the secret is listening to the Holy Spirit and saying, I will do what you say. So when we see this picture of Zacchaeus becoming one of the sons of Abraham, salvation coming to his house, we see Zacchaeus becoming a part of this greater movement that we are a part of as well, that Jesus is saving us and saying, I want you to play your role and play it well. And it's a part of something that has worldwide significance. It's a part of something that is impacting the world for God's glory. Know that God is using you. The illustration Paul uses is that we are one body with many parts. And if you're a thumb or a kneecap or an ear in the body of Christ, play your part well. God wants to use you. Obey Him where you are. Receive Him with joy and then do what He asks you to do. And He's going to use you for His glory. So I want to wrap up here um, just remembering how This is a God who saves the unsavable. As I said, we want to apply this both ways. Outward, who are the people that you've seen out there and you think God could never save them? God can save them because Jesus saves the unsavable. Jesus saves outsiders. Pray for them. Befriend them. But look back at yourself as well and say, man, I was not saved because of how great I was. I was not saved because I was significant or tall or great or powerful. I was saved of the love of God. Deuteronomy 7 is my favorite Old Testament expression of this. You're a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you 
to be his treasure. You're chosen to be his delight, he says, out of all the other peoples, but not because you were more in number, not because you were bigger or more significant. The Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest, you were the smallest, you were the shortest, the tiniest, the puniest. He chose you because the Lord loves you. The Lord chose you because he loves you, not because of how awesome you were. He saves the unsavable. That's what he does, and that's how he gets glory. So I want to wrap up by looking at one of the most beautiful pictures of richness in the New Testament, and this is 2 Corinthians 8 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The story of Zacchaeus is the story of how someone who can't be saved because they're so rich was saved by Jesus. How did Jesus actually do it? Well, Jesus, the richest man in the universe, gave up his riches for you and me. He gave up his riches all the way to the extreme of dying on a cross for us, taking our sin upon himself and giving us his perfect resurrection life his perfect obedience, his joyful relationship with the Father, he shares with us freely. He gave up his riches to us. He became poor so that we can become rich in him. That's the glory of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us. Thank you that you became poor so that we could become rich in you, that we would know the perfect relationship with the Father that you have known from eternity past. Thank you for sharing your wealth. Thank you for sharing your abundance. Thank you for giving yourself away. Lord, help us to share that with others as well. We pray in Jesus' name.